0: Good afternoon. We're about to begin the the fourth panel. I'm Mark Calabria, our director of financial regulation studies here at the Cato Institute, and honored to serve as the moderator of this panel. Much of today's discussion has been about the fiscal problems facing Europe. And while Europe's crisis can and does have direct impacts upon the United States, impacts such as reduced US exports to Europe, uh, our losses in our financial system from US holdings of European debt. Uh, I think the most important impact, however, is whether we in the US learn the appropriate lessons and decide not to make the same mistakes that have been made in Europe. Uh, and while, in my opinion, the facts clearly indicated otherwise, it became very easy in the last recession for politicians in the US and pundits to blame our recession on banks and runaway free market. Uh, We should not forget that early in the European recession, that was also tried, first blaming speculators and short sellers for the problems in Greece uh, rather than the governments. Fortunately, uh, I think that blame game at least did not fool many of us for too long, uh, and that the unsustainable nature of the European welfare state and its dependence on bank financing of government debt became too obvious and too uh, to really just explain away as a result of a free market. The fact is that the very structure of the European welfare state is flawed. Uh, Whether we ignore the flaws in our own system is going to be the topic of today's panel. We are very fortunate to have a very distinguished panel to talk about the relevancy of Europe's debt problems to the United States. Our first speaker will be Cato's own Michael Tanner, who serves as a senior fellow focusing on issues mostly related to entitlement reform, uh, particularly focused on health care. In addition to launching Cato's project on Social Security Choice, Michael is a prolific writer. In addition to a weekly column for National Review Online, he's the author of numerous books, many of which are published by Cato. i have to say my personal favorite is Leviathan on the Right, How Big Government Conservatives Brought Down the Republican Revolution, uh, partly because I think it reminds us that the problems uh, in the United States today are not the result of one party. Uh, we are in a bipartisan mess, uh, and I think that's important to keep in mind going forward. Our second speaker will be, I guess in keeping with the tradition of making sure we have a Canadian, at least on every other panel, our second speaker will be Pierre Lemieux. Pierre is currently an associate professor at the University of Quebec at Hull. From 1980 to 1989, he served as an economic advisor to the province of Quebec's Chamber of Commerce. Uh, He has also recently authored a book directly dealing with today's topic, which is titled The Public Debt Problem, A Comprehensive Guide. Uh, And let me say, having read a draft that I highly recommend it, I think it's very insightful and very accessible introduction to the problems that we're talking about today. Our next speaker will be Desmond Lachman, who is currently a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Previously, he served as managing director and chief emerging market economic strategist at Solomon Smith Barney. He also served as deputy director in the International Monetary Fund's policy development and review department. Our final speaker will be Mickey Levy, currently chief economist at Bank of America, a position he's held since 1998. He was also the 2004 recipient of the Blue Chip Economic Indicators' Most Accurate Forecasting Award. So I think we can uh, pay very close attention to what his forecast of the situation is going to be. Uh, In addition to his service in the private sector, he's held positions at the American Enterprise Institute and the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, I want to note over here on the corner, uh, or at least copies of Pierre's uh, slides, which are going to come up again. Uh, But with that, I'm going to turn the panel over to Michael.
1: Well, thank you very much, and uh, I appreciate you folks for sticking around through what has been uh, a very interesting but also a a somewhat gloomy day in terms of presentations. Uh, uh, And I had to tell you, but I'm probably not going to be any less gloomy this afternoon. Uh, The question I wanted to ask, basically, is when it comes to debt, deficit, the size of government, is the U.S., Uh, on the same path that will ultimately lead us to look a lot more like Greece than a lot less like what the United States used to look like. Uh, And I think uh, the the question uh, doesn't have an easy answer. Uh, Of course, we do know that this was the fourth consecutive year that the United States will have a $1 trillion or more federal budget deficit uh, for the first time in our history. Uh, This chart here actually illustrates uh, budget deficits. uh, Going back to 1960, Uh, you can see the small surplus we had during the Clinton years. But basically, we've run uh, deficits that were well under 6% of GDP until the end of the Bush administration. Uh, And then they took off uh, through the Bush and Obama administrations uh, considerably higher. Uh, They're starting back down a little bit. And you do get a small dip. Uh, in projected deficits, and this is what uh, sort of the problem with 10-year budget projections, 10-year budget windows, uh, because you look forward and you can hear the Obama administration and their projections, we're only going to have a budget deficit of $600 billion by 2018 or something like that, and they're patting themselves on the back for it so hard they almost dislocate their shoulders. Uh, But the problem is, of course, is that once the entitlements begin to kick in around 2021, 2022 or so, uh, those numbers begin to take off again dramatically and you end up with uh, unfathomable budget deficits uh, going forward unless there's some change in the scenario. These are all CBO numbers, by the way. Now, if budget deficits are the single year measure of profligacy, if they show how, much, uh, how bad we've been in a single year, the cumulative total of that, of course, is our, is our debt. Uh, first of all, uh, in terms of deficits, uh, I just want to compare us a little bit to some of the countries you've been hearing about today. Uh, and in terms of as a percentage of gross domestic product, uh, our budget deficit is actually worse than that of all but two countries in Europe. Ireland and good old Greece, uh, they are worse than us, uh, their budget deficits in terms of percentage of GDP. But you know, we're number three in trying hard. Uh, so uh, we've got a w- little ways to go there on that. But as I mentioned, uh, you, know, you take this year-to-year profligacy, you add it all up, and you get the uh, national debt. Uh, National debt, uh, we actually are doing much better. We're only the fifth most profligate nation uh, when it comes to national debt. There are actually four countries that are worse than us. Uh, uh, Ireland and Greece again, but also Italy and Portugal uh, are worse than us in terms of national debt. Our national debt, of course, has just crossed the $16 trillion mark. Uh, Just to put that in perspective, uh, if you wanted to pay that off and you were to pay it off at $1 every second, Uh, You could pay off the national debt in a mere five hundred and seven thousand years. Or I like to look at it another way. Uh, New York Yankees uh, have the highest uh, payroll in professional baseball, and uh, you could pay the New York Yankees for about eighty-one thousand years and still be able to get a couple of free agent pitchers on the side. Uh, So we are—we have, you know, in terms of our debt, we are clearly uh, moving up there. We are worse. Uh, in terms of national debt in France, uh, which really should tell you something uh, uh, out there. But of course, you know, as, as Dan Mitchell points out, that debt that we face today is really not uh, as big an issue when you, as when you look forward. When you have the unfunded liabilities of our pension system, our social security system, and our health care system, Medicare, those are really the big drivers of future debt that are going forward. Uh, and if you actually want to look at the unfunded liabilities, and these numbers will vary a little bit from some of the numbers you saw this morning with Jagadish, because they haven't been updated with his newest research. These are based on uh, his previous research. Uh, but uh, if you want to look at these, there are two scenarios for the United States. Uh, and the reason I use two scenarios is we really aren't sure exactly what Medicare's unfunded liabilities are going to be. Uh, Medicare, it's very tricky because you're projecting future growth in health care costs, not just demographics. Uh, The best scenario, the the most optimistic scenario, this is the one that the Obama administration puts out, assumes, for example, that every one of the changes they make under the Affordable Care Act, under Obamacare, that every cost-cutting measure that they put into place will work perfectly and will achieve every bit of savings that they've projected. And if that's true, then the unfunded liabilities of Medicare are only $38.8 trillion. Now... You know, we can also assume that maybe those things don't work quite the way they're projected. Uh, maybe they don't work at all. In fact, the Congressional Budget Office actually says there's no evidence that any of them actually will save any money. Uh, so if you actually assume that they don't work at all, and you go back and you take the trustees' projections from the, before the, uh, Obamacare passed and project them forward, you end up with about a $90 trillion unfunded liability in Medicare. And then you, of course, have about $22 trillion in unfunded liabilities from Social Security. Uh, and throw in our $16 trillion national debt, and what you end up with is a to- is somewhere uh, in the area of between just under 500% to as much as 911% of GDP being the U.S. total indebtedness. The real level of debt facing this country could potentially exceed 900% of GDP. If it did, if you have that more pessimistic scenario, then we're number one. <laughs> We actually are in a worse debt situation. We are less solvent, if you will, than Greece at the moment. Now, of course, it's very different in the long, you know, in many ways. We have a much larger economy, of course. We are still the world's preferential currency, which enables people to lend us money at absurdly lower interest rates. Uh, and we can, of course, presume that they will do that forever. Uh, some, some economists say, you know, don't worry about it. Borrow it. They're giving us you know, real low interest rates. Uh, so we can go ahead and borrow all that money. But, uh, but it certainly doesn't look good uh, when you think about the fact that we actually owe, technically we owe, nine times more than everything that, the value of everything that's produced in this country over the course of a year. That's not generally good news. Uh, now, some people uh, think that we can solve all this problem if all we do is go ahead and uh, make the rich pay their fair share of taxes. Uh, The president has proposed a number of tax increases. Uh, Just to to put that in perspective, if the president were to get everything that he wanted in terms of his tax hikes, he would get about $325 billion in new taxes over the next 10 years, uh, which is slightly less than the amount of spending increases that he's proposed over the next 10 years. So it wouldn't do much of anything in terms of actually reducing deficit or debt. Uh, but let's assume, you know, I, I think you know the president's actually sort of a piker when it comes to, uh, when it comes to tax increases. I, I think that we really want to make the rich pay their fair share. We should just go out and confiscate it all. Let's just go out and take every bit of it. And this chart shows you exactly what, what would happen in that case. Uh, the two lines on the left, uh, the tall red line is the one assuming the, the bad case for Medicare and the, the worst case scenario. But the, the blue one next to it assumes the really good news, you know, that we, we keep Medicare's unfunded liabilities down to under $40 trillion or so. Uh, that's the amount of actual indebtedness we face, percent of GDP. Uh, the blue line, the light blue line next to, the, next to that, is the actual uh, debt we face, the national debt, $16 trillion of national debt, which is about 100% of GDP. It's the value of everything we produce in this country. It's just over 100%, 102%, I believe, is the last numbers I saw. And the little dark uh, line, uh, grayish uh, box next to that, that is the total wealth of every millionaire and billionaire in America. So if uh, you know, the Obama administration were to go out and uh, fulfill their greatest desires and confiscate all that money from all those evil one-percenters, uh, it wouldn't even pay off the national debt, let alone make a dent of what we really own. There simply is no possible way to tax your way out of the situation we're in. You can't get there from here. There is no possible way to actually do that. Uh, In fact, uh, according to the Congressional Budget Office, these are the tax rates you would actually have to have in order to pay our current obligations. Now, this assumes there wouldn't be a single increase in government spending going forward. No new government programs whatsoever implemented from this point on. This is just our current obligations that you would actually have to raise the current top 35% income tax rate and the corporate tax rate would both have to be raised to 88%. The 25% in tax rate would have to go to 63%, and the 10% income tax rate would have to go to 25%. If you did all of that, assuming that the economy was still moving uh, at that point, uh, you could pay off our existing obligations. Without, if you did, as long as you didn't undertake any new ones, uh, does anyone really believe that you can do that and have a functioning economy? Uh, I think they're pretty, pretty negative. Uh, now, as Dan Mitchell pointed out to you, the uh, you know we we think that these debt and deficit numbers are not are the symptom, not the disease. They're only you know the, the manifestation of the problem, which is government spending, which is the size of government. <laughs> As Milton Friedman used to point out, it's not whether you pay for it through taxes or debt that's the real burden on the economy. It's how much money the government takes out of the private sector uh, and controls. Well, you know, this is uh, the projection of the growth size of government and government spending going forward uh, right now. Uh, by the middle of the century, the federal government will be consuming 43% of GDP in this country. Uh, which is higher than the average consumption in Europe today as a percentage of GDP. Uh, and, of course, by the end of the century, it's, it's astronomical. But I would point out that that's only federal government spending, well, 43%. State and local governments take between 15 and 20% of GDP on top of that. So you'd actually have government at all levels by the middle of the century consuming about 60 cents out of every dollar produced in this country. Again, I think you end up just sort of an intolerable burden, something that you can't possibly deal with. So clearly, any changes we make, anything we want to do to actually right the ship, is going to have to involve some sort of important government spending cuts. We're going to have to reduce the size of our government. And faced with this, you know, we saw a great example last Thursday, uh, last, sorry, last Wednesday in Denver. Where the two president can- presidential candidates squared off on the important question of whether or not we were going to kill Big Bird, you know, given the fact that uh, PBS, which I think is ripe for the killing, uh, you know, amounts to one one hundredth of one percent of federal spending, uh, it's not going to get us there. Uh, in the meantime, we heard that Mitt Romney says he will not cut defense spending, will not cut Medicare, will not cut. Uh, Social Security will not cut education spending, will not cut student loans, uh, and so on. And President Obama then beat him up for wanting to slash the budget. Uh, One has to ask where we're going to get there. Because look, this is federal spending in this country. Discretionary domestic spending uh, is about 18% of federal spending. This is the FBI, the FDA, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Education, all of those things, big birds in there, uh, all of those things, about 18% of federal spending. You could abolish it all tomorrow. And believe me, I dream of this every night. (laughs) But if you got rid of it all, we would still run a $500 billion deficit this year. You can't get there by dealing with Big Bird and the waste and fraud and abuse and government and all the other excuses. You have to put defense on the table. And you, most importantly, have to put entitlements on the table, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. That's 46% of federal spending. Whoops. I turned. there. That's 46% of federal spending. Now, you can't touch interest on the debt, so basically, if you want to cut the size of government, cut government spending, and balance the budget, you have to be willing to deal with the entitlements in this country. And unfortunately, unfortunately, at this point, I don't see the courage in either political party to do so. And if we don't find that courage, if one of the candidates doesn't step up and be willing to tell the American people the truth about this then I think very off, very soon, the United States is going to become Greece. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh, Pierre.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, I should say first that I am uh, nearly a former Canadian, because although I am affiliated with the University of Quebec, I now live in the US. I live in Maine. <laughs> Uh, so when, uh, if I follow my text here, when I say reluctantly, our welfare state, I mean the American welfare state. OK, um, <clears throat> Michael has uh, stolen a bit of my tundra. I hope there is some left in my, in my talk here. Well, let's uh, first talk about the American welfare state compared to the uh, European welfare state. The two uh, welfare states are not as as different as conventional wisdom would have it. If we define the welfare state as that part of the state devoted to taking charge of the welfare of the public, then welfare state functions cover social protection, which includes social security, uh, health, and education. Now, let me. When you press, okay. Uh, you press the thing. Okay. Um, as shown on my chart, these functions make up for 57% of total government expenditure in America, total federal plus state expenditures, compared to 63% for the typical Eurozone country. In this sense, the American welfare state is about only 10% smaller than the European welfare state. 57% is 10% smaller than uh, 63%. Note that these figures relate to 2007, so as to exclude the growth of welfare state expenditures due to the 2008-2009 recession. This picture overestimates the size of of the American welfare state in one important way. Since overall government expenditures are higher in Europe than uh, they are in, uh, in America, the gap in the ratio of welfare state expenditures to GDP will be lower. Welfare state expenditures, in fact, are 21% of GDP in America compared to 30% in the typical uh, Eurozone country our 10% gap between the American and the European welfare state thus gets amplified to 30%. There are two two 30% there. 21% happens to be 30% smaller than 30%. This is still a difference of degree rather than a difference in kind. Other differences exist between the two welfare states, like the higher sense of entitlement in Europe and their wall-to-wall social welfare programs. Yet many authors who have studied the situation from the right and from the left agree that the difference between the American and European welfare state is much overestimated. One feature of the American welfare state is that it is heavily biased towards the old, of people like myself, and health care. Social security accounts for about 14% of total government expenditures in the U.S., Medicare for 9%, and other public health expenditure for about 6%. That's, again, total government expenditure, not only federal. That's half of total welfare expenditures, and at least three-fourths of this goes to the old. In their recent book, Lawrence Kotlikoff, and Scott Burns argue that the benefits granted to the old are a Ponzi scheme, and that the accounting system hiding the scheme, quote, goes far beyond Bernie Madoff's wildest dreams, end of quote. This does not as help make the American welfare state more sustainable than its European cousin. Another relevant fact is that uh, taxes are lower okay. Taxes are lower in uh, the United States than in most other countries Virtually all government revenues are taxes or ultimately come from taxes so the global tax rate of a country can be measured by the ratio of total government revenue over GDP which is also national income. In 2007, this ratio was uh, uh, 34% in the US uh, compared to uh, 42% in the OECD and to 44% in our 10 eurozone countries. The global tax rate is thus 23% lower in America than in the Eurozone. Now, if the the American welfare state is 30% smaller than its European cousin, and if the gap in the global tax rate is not much lower, that is, 23%, we would expect our welfare state to develop the same sort of problems as theirs. And indeed, it can be shown that the debt problem is as bad in America as it is in Europe. Much of the American welfare state has been financed by deficits, that is, by increases in the public debt and thus in future taxes. In 2007, total gross debt in America was already very close to the average for the eurozone. That is 67% compared to 72%. Which you should be able to read there, but I agree that it's very difficult to read. (laughs) Um, It was even higher than in the Eurozone if we take the latter's unweighted average, which was 56%. At the end of 2010, the American gross public debt, all levels of government, stood at 109% of GDP. and and has overtaken the weighted uh, eurozone ratio of 99%. The unweighted figure is even lower for Europe at 86%. Another crucial fact to understand is that um, much, well, actually most of the public debt has been accumulated before the Great Recession. Of the outstanding public debt, at the end of 2010, three-fourths had been accumulated before the Great Recession in Europe and two-thirds in America. The proportions are not much different if we take the unweighted instead of the weighted figures for Europe. It is thus very misleading.
1: Uh,
2: Well, weighted, it's weighted by... You know, when I talk about the weighted figure, you uh, take the whole total debt in the Eurozone, which you divide by the uh, total GDP for the Eurozone. Unweighted, you take the ratio for every, countries, for every country and you take the average of this. Now, the unweighted figure is going to be lower in general than the weighted figure, uh, simply because you have a few countries like uh, France uh, and uh, Germany, who have very high uh, debt ratio, which of course are going to increase the weighted figure, which is going to be uh, more or less um, dissolved when you take the whole, uh, all the countries, the 17 countries. Okay. It is thus very misleading to present the public debt problem as an offspring of the Great Recession, which only exacerbated an existing problem and just advanced the day of of reckoning. It is true that public debts have continued to accumulate since my cutoff year of 2010. But even if we calculate the debt at the end of 2012 instead of 2010, the proportion of accumulated debt before 2008 still reaches two-thirds in Europe and more than 60% in America. Moreover, the continuing uh, growth of the public debt is partly due to the feeble recovery, which itself can be partly traced to the debt crisis. So it is not unreasonable to assume that any debt incurred after 2010 is not the product of the Great Recession. The bottom line anyway, the bottom line, line anyway is that the largest part of the public debt, both in America and in Europe, that is between two-thirds and three-fourths, was generated by the growth of the welfare state before the Great Recession. Since the same causes have the same effects, it is realistic to expect an American crisis similar to the current and developing crisis in Europe. The nature of the threat becomes even more striking if we consider the tax increases or the expenditure cuts that would be required in order to merely keep constant the ratio of the debt to GDP. I will now now ignore the part of the public debt due by state and local governments. So let me focus on the simulations of the Government Accountability Office, GAO, which is a nonpartisan congressional agency that audits the government. The The fiscal gap is the difference in present value between revenues and non-interest spending over a certain time horizon, in our case here, 75 years, assuming, again, that the debt remains constant as a proportion of GDP. Under the most realistic scenario, which assumes that recent policies will continue, the federal federal fiscal gap amounts to 8.2% of GDP between now and 2086. Closing the fiscal gap by increasing revenues would require an immediate and permanent increase of 46% of revenues, which which basically means an immediate and permanent increase of 40% in all federal tax rates. Alternatively, solving the fiscal gap problem on the expenditure side would require an immediate and permanent cut of 32% of non-interest spending. Any delay means that future tax increases or spending cuts would have to be larger. Other estimates are basically in the same range, but the ones I've given given you are official estimates. Many people seem to count on economic growth to solve the public debt problem. Uh, This is basically uh, an illusion, uh, because if anything, economic growth will be lower in the future. Uh, the forecast of GAO and also of the uh, Congressional Budget Office, CBO, uh, incorporate an assumption of a 2.1 to 2.2 percent annual rate of growth, which is one percentage point lower than the, uh, well, at least one percentage point lower than the historical uh, growth rate. Indeed, uh, the American growth rate, as you know, have uh, has, has uh, declined over the past uh, um, few uh, decades. Um, It is a fair bet that one of the causes of the slowing down of economic growth lies in the decline of economic freedom and the consequent loss of flexibility in the American economy. Um, This is shown by the two international indexes that measure economic freedom. Uh, The Fraser Institute index puts the United States at the the 18th spot among uh, 144 countries. The other index, published by the Heritage Foundation and the Wall Street Journal, estimated that around 2008, the U.S. uh, had fallen from the rank of free countries to to the mostly free category. With mounting regulation, we we have been, in a way, witnessing the Europeanization of the American economy. Consequently, we can expect economic growth to continue slowing down. Another reason why economic growth will be slowing down is the very effect of high debt, high public debt, or high public taxes on the rate of growth. Why? do financial markets don't notice this, I think it's only a question of time. And I think that when financial markets uh, do take into consideration, do realize how serious is the American debt problem, uh, then we are going to have the same crisis in Europe, in, in the United States, as they are having in Europe. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Pierre.
3: Um, Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I'm going to take a somewhat different approach, you know, talk a little bit more about Europe than before I get into the United States. Uh, I think that it would be a good idea to have a correct diagnosis of what is causing the European crisis right now. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I then want to go on to talk about why I think that the action of the ECB to do whatever it takes to save the euro is unlikely to be successful. And then finally, I want to draw a few lessons uh, from Europe that I think are relevant to the United States. So let me just begin with a diagnosis of uh, the European problem as far as I see it. Mm. Uh, Basically, uh, the root of the problem is, uh, I should say it's complex, but if you're wanting to reduce it to its essence, uh, it's that Europe got itself into the most fixed of exchange rate arrangements in 1999 uh, by giving up individual currencies and going to the Euro, and then they proceeded for more or less 10 years, not playing by the rules of the game. So specifically, the rules of the game set out in the Maastricht criteria were that countries were not to have large deficits. They were to keep the deficit below 3% of GDP. They were not to let the public debt rise above 60%. They were to keep inflation at very low levels, not allow competitiveness problems uh, to occur. Well, what occurred is that those rules were uh, obeyed in the breach. So this chart, the first chart that I put up, just indicates uh, where we were in uh, 2011. Uh, So you get countries, the first panel just showing, uh, that countries have public debt-to-GDP ratios that way over 100% double the Maastricht criteria they're running budget deficits, uh, some of them 10%, 11%. Uh, so you've got uh, that problem. And then what you've got as well is countries over the uh, uh, 10 years managed to lose huge amount of international competitiveness. So what you had is countries in the periphery generally running wage and price inflation at very much higher levels uh, than Germany. So they open up gaps in competitiveness, and this causes huge current account deficits, huge external uh, debt problems. So in essence, not playing by the rules, uh, they get themselves into big public finance problems, and they get themselves into big competitiveness problems. I should hasten at this point to say that it's simplistic to say that all of these countries got into their mess through fiscal profligacy. While that is certainly true in the case of Greece, It's not true in the case of countries like Spain and Ireland where the problem was more a question of allowing massive housing bubbles to develop bubbles that are very much larger uh, than that in the United States and then when they burst, uh, they really cause the public deficit and public finances uh, to really blow out in a uh, very bad way. Now, what is occurring in Europe right now is that they're trying to cure these problems within a fixed exchange rate system through severe fiscal austerity. What they're trying to do is reduce the budget deficit by something like two or three percentage points of GDP a year, not for one year, not for two years, but for three years. This is the idea of the uh, fiscal pact. The only trouble is you're applying fiscal austerity at the time that the economies are already uh, in pretty deep recession. And what is occurring as well is their banking systems are messed up. Uh, They've got a huge amount of loan losses. So what you're getting is you're getting banks cutting back on credit. So you're going into a very interesting experiment in what you're doing is you're applying pro-cyclical fiscal policy, pro-cyclical monetary policy in uh, a downturn, and the results aren't too pretty. Uh, this is indicating just for the countries in the periphery uh, that um, the economy is way below the peak in 2008. They haven't got anywhere near the peak. They're now clearly in decline. If you see the IMF's uh, uh, latest forecasts, you know, forget about Greece. Greece is totally collapsed. That, that economy is down something like 20%. Another 7% this year, another 5% next year. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how collapse that economy can get. But the more serious problems are that you've got Italy and Spain that are now contracting. Italy is contracting at an annualized rate of around about 3.2% the last three quarters. And uh, Spain is contracting at something like 1.5%. And you're now insisting on applying fiscal austerity while the banks are cutting back on credit, and you're expecting the economies to stabilise, which somehow I don't think is going to occur. Uh, This chart just indicates that if you look at Europe as a whole, the picture is not too pretty. Unemployment, which used to be around about 8.5%, is now at practically an all-time high for Europe as a whole, including Germany, uh, confidence number on the left isn't uh, giving me too much confidence that uh, we've reached an inflection point. Uh, what is occurring is each time that Europe approaches the abyss, uh, you get some sort of massive rescue package. Uh, you know, first, we had the ECB coming in in December 2011 with an LTRO program. Uh, they threw a mere 1 trillion euros at the European banking system and they bought all of something like three or four months calm in the markets till we got to June, in which Mr. Draghi uh, famously said at the London Olympics uh, that he would do whatever it took uh, to save the euro, uh, and that uh, would he had to take his word uh, that he had enough uh, to do what it took. Uh, subsequently, they've elaborated this, uh, what they're indicating they're going to do is they're going to buy as much uh, Italian and Spanish bonds of a maturity of less than three years, provided uh, Italy and Spain sign up to conditionality uh, programs. Uh, meanwhile, of course, there's a huge amount of capital flight. Uh, I don't want to get into the intricacies of Target 2 accounts, uh, but Germany is uh, running a uh, creditor position uh, the Bundesbank, Uh, is running a creditor position of 750-odd billion euros. Uh, No wonder Mr. Wiedmann is uh, on the apoplectic side. Um, I don't believe that uh, the intervention by the ECB is going to save the euro, uh, you know, basically for a fundamental reason is that they aren't changing the basic uh, fundamentals uh, in the sense that the money is conditional on these countries following hugely austere fiscal policies in the middle of a slump with their banks in very bad shape. So my expectation is we'll see the recession deepening substantially in 2012, and that of course will drive uh, the political process. Uh, The natives in Portugal, Ireland, uh, Greece aren't too happy. Uh, They're in uh, the streets already, so we'll see where they are in 2013. Of course, it does nothing to deal with the Greek situation. Uh, The Greek uh, coalition government looks to me, at least, on borrowed time. Uh, There's no way that this is going to hold together. It's a matter of time before Greece leaves the euro, uh, and that'll trigger a bit of uh, contagion. Uh, We've got resistance in uh, both uh, Spain and Italy. Don't want to get into the problems of Catalonia, or the Italian election in April, but they don't look as if they're running to the IMF. I remember Stan Fisher uh, used to mention that you go to the IMF with the same enthusiasm as you go visit your oncologist. Um, that, um, and of course, in Germany, you're getting already getting pushback. Uh, it's quite amazing, uh, Wittmann uh, writing a letter the very day that Draghi announces what the ECB's program is. Uh, of the Bundesbank comes out and says that they're on the wrong course, that to me doesn't look like it's a sustainable position. So where does this all leave us for the United States? Uh, The lesson, you know, people have alluded to it before, is that you really don't want to go the route of Greece. It's not a very pretty route. Uh, And I think that there's a lot of validity to that uh, argument, The only trouble is uh, that the United States train has long since left the station. Uh, So if you look at this chart, it basically does the same as uh, what previous speakers have said. It just shows that the United States is just one angle that the United States public finances uh, make those in Europe look fairly healthy. So the United States, these are the average deficits over A number of years, the most recent years, 2008, et cetera, uh, you look at the euro area average, uh, the United States is uh, double uh, that average. So, you know, that lesson uh, isn't, um, you know, I think that it's a valid lesson, but uh, it's a little late in the day for us to be getting that lesson. Uh, This chart is a different way of portraying how bad the United States position is in relation to Europe. Uh, what it does is, on the one axis—I've uh, forgotten whether they y's or x's anymore—probably okay. uh, giving my age—that uh, the vertical axis is the uh, budget deficit, uh, the uh, horizontal axis is at the gross level of debt. You know, just look at the circled areas. You see, United States gross level of debt now is over 105 percent, something like 15 percentage points higher than that in Europe. And what you've got is you've got uh, the budget deficit in the United States is more than double that in uh, Europe. You know, if you look at Germany uh, and the United States, uh, you know, Germany is in a pretty good. It looks like it's in the pink of health compared uh, to the United States. The United States looks more like, to me, uh, more like the Portugals and islands uh, of the world, which is not uh, too good. Um, there's a point that's been made before, you know, which I would take issue with. Uh, there are plenty of things wrong with big welfare states, uh, but I think that's a little bit simplistic to say that welfare states are associated with high levels of budget deficits. So what this chart does is it basically uh, looks at spending as a percent of GDP on the one axis. On the other axis, it looks at the fiscal balance, and you see That it doesn't look like the correlation is going in the way that you would hope for or that you would expect. So essentially, just to once again use the example of the United States, uh, the United States, which has a relatively low level of public expenditure in relation to that of Europe, it's got expenditure of around about 42% of GDP, Europe is at 49% of GDP, but the United States deficit is something like uh, two and a half times the size of that of Europe. If we look at something like Sweden, you know, the uh, epitome of a welfare state, uh, they manage to have very high levels of public debt and they don't seem to have a, a problem with a budget uh, deficit. Uh, so what are the lessons, are the lessons that uh, I think you can draw from the European experience? One is that being heavily reliant on external sources of finance is not a good idea, you know. So you find that the Japanese or the Italians, that have got much higher levels of public debt than the United States, they manage to survive because there's home bias that the savers save in uh, their, their uh, countries. The United States heavily dependent on foreign sources, namely countries like China. Uh, That's not a good idea. Something that, uh, you know, I would like to send this chart to Paul Krugman is uh, he basically makes the argument that uh, why are you bothered about high level of United States public expenditure? Why don't you spend more to get ourselves out of the deficit, you know, because we can borrow at 1 or 2% uh, you know this chart you know indicates and I think that that's really an important lesson is that countries like Greece as late as 2009 were borrowing at 18 basis points above the rate at which Germany had borrow so in other words to put it in a different way if Germany was paying 3% for its 10 year financing Uh, Greece was paying 3.2%, so much for the efficiency of markets and for for foresight of markets. Uh, So I think that the United States would be making a huge mistake to take comfort in the fact that the Treasury now can borrow at 1.5%. That can change uh, in uh, a very uh, short uh, time. The last three lessons uh, that I would draw uh, from the situation is that fiscal austerity isn't much fun, uh, that uh, if this chart indicates that even in the United Kingdom, uh, which has a floating exchange rate and where the Bank of England is really trying to offset this through a huge amount of quantitative easing, uh, the United Kingdom is not doing too well. Uh, It's going into... uh, uh, recession, But my point here is that if you are going to go into a huge amount of fiscal tightening over a period of time, uh, it would be a good idea to have the central bank try to offset the contractory impact of uh, the tightening um, as one goes along. You know, that's something uh, uh, that's been done very successfully in a place like Sweden in 1992. Last two uh, points is that I think that the speed of adjustment uh, does make a difference, and I think that uh, there's plenty of work showing that the composition of adjustment. If you are going to be adjusting, it makes a big difference whether you do it through spending cuts, which is preferable uh, to tax increases. It's a lot, uh, uh, it's a lot um, easier. But uh, I would just finish uh, on. Uh, the note saying uh, that uh, I'm not too optimistic about uh, the global outlook, given the amount of fiscal tightening uh, that does need to be done in the end. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Desmond. Uh, yeah. Mickey? you going to
4: get my piece? now. Well, my, my the, the title of my no, I'm not Dick <laughs> um, The title of my, my presentation is is uh, challenges and lessons, and, and my biggest challenge is going to be avoiding all the various redundancies. Um, let me let me just begin by saying, uh, for decades, from like 1980 through 2007. Europe, on average, grew persistently slower than the US by about one percentage point a year, which you compounded. It's enormous. If you disaggregate that shortfall in growth, almost all of it was labor supply. Very little of it was productivity. And then came Maastricht. It was codified by the stability and growth Pact, And and, um, then you had. The problems that have emerged now. So, on top of the, even before the crisis, potential growth in Europe was very, very slow due to a combination of uh, large scope of of government. And we've been through a period where the troubled European nations have lived well beyond their means in a variety of ways. for some countries, it was excessive sovereign or private sector debt. For others, loss of competitiveness. And I want to come back to this measure, um, the housing <laughs> bubbles in in Ireland and Spain. Keep in mind the ECB when it when it you know sets its monetary policy uses uh, harmonized data. So what was right for Germany 10 years ago, uh, rates were way 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 too low for. Um, for Ireland and Spain that, that, under, underscored, that, that led to the, the housing bubble and boom. And then, of course, um, the leverage that was provided by banks. So when we think about uh, the costs, the lessons from this, when you, when you live beyond your means, don't expect to turn things around overnight. When you live beyond your means, expect a very costly um, adjustment process with declining standards of living um, and, and, and you're going to face political uh, opposition and, and the bottom line is, is um, sustainable healthy performance requires uh, sound uh, forward looking policies. Now Europe um, faces a lot of problems um, try, the policymakers are trying, uh, I'll be polite here trying to come to grips with the contradictions of of the the European Union. And now, what the challenges they face are interlocking. Government debt, banking, and banking problems are, are intertwined closely with the sovereign problems, not just their undercapitalization, the lack of competitiveness, the real estate bubble and 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 the recession and high and high unemployment so so let's consider just putting these in three categories: uh, problems with the economy, problems with debt and problems with banking and each one's has a lesson with the u s and and I, I'd say to summarize here, the u s is way, way way ahead of Europe in addressing its banking problems, recapitalizing the bank's deleveraging. Europe has miles to go there um, Many European nations are well ahead of the US in addressing its, its government fiscal problems. Um, but the US has made much more problem in its progress in its private uh, leverage. And then when we look at the economies, I can actually find a glimmer of hope when I analyze the United States. Um, when I look at Europe, um, it's hard to see sustainable growth um, in the next couple of years. Okay, now just just very, very quickly, because I have have some slides to go through. Um, we have to keep in mind the ECB. It's short-term funding to banks last year that Desmond mentioned. Um, it's it's program to to buy sovereign bonds under certain conditions. These buy time. They, they, they provide you know the, the, the central banks acting as, as lender of last resort uh, and, and more. But, but they do not resolve the problem. And so the problems facing Europe are real. They're non-monetary in, nation, in, in nature. And whenever I go to Europe and, and talk to the policymakers and, and, and hang out with the, the people determining the policies, they all say, and yes. It's all going to work out if the ECB (laughs) continues to provide all the liquidity we need. Um, So but the bottom line, and here's where I'm uh, um, maybe not the ultimate pessimist, uh, um, that I see policymakers, um, they're going to continue in Europe to press for uh, doing everything it takes to keep Europe together. That will increase the costs. it's going gonna, it's gonna to require a lot of pro-growth reforms, banking reforms, giving up uh, uh, national sovereignty, dealing with different cultures. Um, it, it's it's it, once again, when you live beyond your means for a variety of reasons, um, it takes a while to adjust, and it's going to involve lower standards of living. And, and um, what we found in the U.S. is also true in Europe. It's just a hell of a lot more fun to leverage <laughs> than deleverage. Okay, <laughs> now, um, GDP, and I put a vertical line uh, over here, through kind of the expansion peak, and what's striking is Germany is the only European nation where, uh, of the big nations, I'll, I'll, uh, maybe there are one or two other Norlands, where GDP is is anywhere close to its prior expansion peak. And the US is about 1.5% above it. Here's the year-over-year trend. And um, once again, um, okay. what's what's the outlook for 2013? Well, the the policymakers in Europe are now saying, well, we're going to put positive forecasts up there. The ECB has it that I'm working with the European Commission on on what their forecast is going to be. And you ask them, is it, is it is your forecast of growth in 2013? Is it is it based on anything besides hope? And I'll, I, I ask those types of questions, and they'll say, well, you know, the, the ECB by coming in has built up, you know, our confidence, and and things are going to turn around. Well, let's see. But I think a critical point here is the longer the recessions in Europe last, <laughs> it not only increases your, your, your debt ratios, but it really clobbers the banking system, which once again is, is, is intertwined. And um, um, for the last three years, every succeeding official forecast has been more negative. And unfortunately here, one of the critical issues, and and our friend from Estonia talked about it, our friend from Germany talked about it, is how do the policymakers manage expectations as they put in place austerity and fiscal reform? That is critically important. And when I see policymakers in Europe um, leading by giving the public deficit projections that you you, you basically say, you idiot. You know uh, the the highest probability is you're not going to achieve that, and you're going to only lose credibility. And so once again, you could have a whole seminar on how to manage expectations. Not just expectations of the marketplace and the electorate, but expectations of your own politicians. Because after every one of these policymakers uh, leaves their next conference uh, in Brussels or wherever and goes back to their home country, they have to face local politics. How many tangents am I going off on? Um, Industrial production, every country in Europe below their prior expansion peak. Unemployment rates up. and now, put the, the U.S., as you know, is a touch below 8%. Youth unemployment above 50% in Greece and Spain. Duration of unemployment is rising. When does that become structural? The U.S. on youth unemployment um, is, um, where are we? I don't know where it is, but it's, it's 18 or so. And, and we're very concerned about that. Okay. Um, going on in the economy house prices in Spain are destined to fall further um, there's a whole sto- interesting story about this the the national supervise bank supervisors are protecting their banks and and keeping the, the EP- EBA away and so when they don't mark to market their portfolios they're not clearing the housing markets and so on and so forth sounds familiar. what
0: sounds familiar
4: okay now Earlier this morning, there was a lot of discussion about lack of competitiveness. So one of the critical problems facing the European nations, the troubled ones, is their unit labor costs of production have risen dramatically relative to, say, say Germany's. And by the way, flip this chart on its head and you can see what's happened to exports. Okay, Through, From 2000 to 2008, Germany's domestic demand grew just as fast as Italy's. But but their exports nearly doubled. Okay, So um, an interesting point here is is I did some research earlier this year and published a paper in which I disaggregated the unit labor cost differentials into productivity differentials and wage differentials. And what you find is with the exception of Italy that has had no productivity growth for 10 years, All of the, virtually all of the increase in unit labor cost differentials, that is loss of competitiveness, is wages, wages running out of control. So it's one thing to um, tell um, Italian labor unions be more productive. It's another thing to tell them to reduce their real wages. So when we talk about how do you become competitive, when you cannot uh, devalue your currency you're talking about declines in real wages okay those are hard to come by while maintaining confidence of the populace and that's critically important okay, i can't emphasize that enough that it's it's not enough for these c- troubled countries to clean up their sovereign debt and clean up their banking but they also have to become competitive. And since they can't devalue, it's got to come out of real wages. Very difficult to increase productivity when GDP is declining. OK, so, so once, l- let me just, before I jump into this, the, the economies in Europe, they're going through a very painful adjustment process. Um, every smart economist should tell you um, Every smart economist should tell you um, you need fiscal austerity for the long run. There is no trade-off between fiscal austerity, sound finances, and long-run prosperity. You need that. In the short run, depending on the composition, depending on the credibility of the policymakers, there can be a trade-off. And this is a difficult issue. Okay, now I'm going to talk about debt. The red line, the red bars you've seen, that's government debt, The pink lines, the pink bars are private debt as a percent of GDP. So, what I want to point out here is let's just look at Spain, 270% of GDP. Okay? What is that stuff? Okay, it's mortgages, it's credit cards, it's construction loans. Who holds it? Mostly Spanish banks. What are they marking it at? We don't really know. Okay? Big problem. So the problem facing banks and their gross undercapitalization isn't just their holdings of the sovereigns, but it's also their holdings of private debt and what are they marking it to. Now, another critical point about bond yields, and I've, these are, I think, current to, to yesterday. Um, if your sovereign bond yields are dramatically above your nominal GDP, your national income growth, then you're going the wrong way in the spiral. And keep in mind, these yields reflect purchases by the ECB and reflect the 1.4 trillion trillion euros that the the ECB has provided to the bank's cheap money through the LTRO. Okay, so, so, and then Desmond showed this chart of, Target-2 imbalances is just a way to show um, cross-border transfers. But because when the ECB has pumped liquidity into the banking system, you can't just look at deposits, because that obfuscates it. If you look at these Target-2 imbalances, um, they are the best measure of capital flight. Uh, A lot of it's flowing into Germany. That's about 25% of its GDP. Capital inflight. I was talking to uh, the head of one of the biggest uh, Dutch banks. And he says he just spends all day. Just capital liquidity just floods in. What do you do with it? Well, I park it at the ECB and and earn a few basis points. Um, Spain, um, if you you owned a company in Madrid, um, would you keep all your money in a Spanish bank now? That's what Spanish companies are asking themselves. Okay, who's filling the gap as as capital leaves banks? Um, It's being filled by the ECB. So the ECB is the glue that's keeping things together now, but it's only buying time. So, once again, when when we get back to this broad issue, okay, um, US banks have gone a tremendous way towards raising capital. cleaning up their act. Um, um, Let me toss in another point here. Um, Working day to day in this stuff. What's amazing about these stress tests is actually forcing US bank CEOs to understand what the products are. I mean, it's amazing. Um, um, European banks have a mile to go. And I applaud European policymakers by saying the EBA didn't do the trick. Um, we're going to create a unified, have a blueprint for unified bank supervision um, under the auspices of the ECB that will have teeth. Um, the, the, the positive to that is it's absolutely necessary. A point of caution it's one thing to talk about unified supervision, it's another thing to talk about unified resolution, and it's miles away to talk about um, unified. Banking deposit because that means cross-border transfers, and are, are German citizens going to be w- willing to um, subsidize deposit insurance for for Greek or Italian banks? So the banking system has a long, long, long way to go. They, it requires capital, and it has to be, and they have to raise capital and dilute themselves because if they just cut risk-weighted assets, that means they're constricting. Uh, uh, to, My time's up. That means they're constricting uh, desperately needed uh, lending. But the lessons for the US, beyond the absolutely intuitively obvious that the US needs to address its debt problems, the other is the US needs to think about pro-growth policies. That's what's gotten Europe into trouble. And that's what very well could get the US into trouble. So the US has to, as, as the largest, uh, wealthiest, actually one of the fastest growing large economies in the world, um, it has to think about how to maintain that type of, of growth and, and how you're going to do it. Thank you. Well, I want
0: to thank each of our panelists. And we have just a time for a few questions. So let me open it up uh, to the audience right here in the middle, second row. Uh, Please wait for the mic to come to you uh, and identify yourself. And also, please uh, try to keep it to a question Uh, right here in the middle of the front.
2: Uh, Gerald Chandler of ITEC Consultants. To Mr. Livy and the whole panel, your last remark was what the U.S. needs to do. Uh, We've had the Simpson-Bowles Commission, a lot of other things. Right now, President Obama is running on a platform that's more or less the opposite of that. Do you think that after the election, if he's reelected, that he's going to uh, adopt the Simpson-Bowles
4: or do anything like what you said needs to be done? Let me try to be an optimist here. <laughs> we could use one. <laughs> okay, so so let's let's hypothesize that President Obama's is reelected, and then during a, a, a transition period, what we have to recognize is we'll continue to face all of the uncertainties. Even when we get into January and the fiscal cliff's done, whatever it's going to do, you still face all the uncertainties. I think what may happen is. One of his smart political operatives will come to him and say, um, "If you're willing to broker a, a compromise, we'll spin it positive and make you look great. Um, if you don't, you're going to be miserable for four years so so i so so um, even if Obama's reelected I don't." i i I do see a potential for some some kind of compromise, but once again, what I would emphasize here is we saw all day long we 've seen a ton of charts showing the magnitude of spending and and the magnitude of debt and the taxes what 's critically important to any compromise is. What provisions are you changing, and how are you affecting the allocation of national resources, and how are you inf- affecting incentives and are you doing so that builds hum- builds confidence? I mean one thing we talk about in the u s is this um, the stubbornly high unemployment rate, but juxtapose that with the fact that u s corporations are sitting on trillion dollars in cash about 15 percent of gdp what's going to unleash that what is going to lead not just households but businesses to be confident enough in the future that they want to invest and they want to hire so i can see a glimmer of light maybe
0: see uh,
3: right here yes
0: oh desmond you want to take a shot at that
3: Um, I think that part of it would depend on how does the political balance change after the election? Are we going to get something that would break uh, the gridlock? Uh, but what is more likely to occur, I would think, is uh, that a crisis is going to force you to a sensible kind of solution. Balsamson, to me, it seems that that was the biggest mistake that Obama made, certainly on the economic side during the administration, you know, not to run with that, you know, because I think that when you run through the numbers, uh, you really do have to do stuff on both the expenditure side and the revenue enhancement side. Your problem is of such a dimension uh, that Bal Simpson uh, made a lot of sense, but politically, it doesn't. Uh, it didn't work. I've, I, my trouble is, I sit around a colleague uh, who wrote a book on Congress. You know, Norm Ornstein. Uh, who, the title of the book was "It's Worse Than You Think."
0: Yeah, over here. Stephen Shore. To anyone who wishes to answer, do um, Do you? Do you are, any of you see any possibility that the dollar might cease to be the world's reserve currency? And um, would you say that China has the same role in relation to the US that the ECB does in relation to the euro? And regardless of who is elected president, if the Chinese made it clear that we must institute certain structural reforms, wouldn't that give an out to whoever is elected by simply saying, the Chinese made me do this?
3: I'm not sure whether you were following Mrs. Merkel's visit to Greece, you know, that, that the Greeks greeted her with such uh, gratefulness, you know, that she had come to tell them what to do. Uh, but, you know, just in terms of uh, the dollar being replaced as a reserve currency, you know, that's always a possibility. You know, we've seen that. If you look at the last century, the uh, sterling uh, was the reserve currency for a long time. It took a long time uh, to dislodge it. but when you're talking about uh, a reserve currency getting replaced, it's always got to get replaced by something else. And I think that the dollar's strength is that however bad the United States fundamentals might be, uh, you've got fundamentals in other parts of the world that are even worse. So you know, to take a specific example, uh, if you've got a major currency block that is in the process of unraveling, Uh, namely the euro, the euro doesn't look like it's a candidate. If you look at Japan, uh, if you think our demographics are bad, uh, Japan's demographics are hopeless. Uh, If you look at the Chinese renminbi, you can't have a, a reserve currency, a currency that's not fully convertible, and as soon as they move towards convertibility, it'll... Uh, reveal a whole lot of problems with their banking system and so on. So my bet is uh, that uh, the dollar wins this contest amongst the midgets of the world. Mm -hmm. It's the tallest of the midgets.
4: Let me just add a point. Uh, China is gradually moving the renminbi toward being used in some international transactions um, with some of its partners. Uh, It's issuing... um, bonds um, out of Hong Kong, but it has a long-term game plan to expand its uses. But as Desmond just said, not only does it have to become fully convertible, um, it has to also, China has to break down its its barriers to renminbi capital flow and it doesn't want to do that right away. So if you look at through history, the times like when the dollar replaced the pound um, and earlier times when you had a change in in the world's reserve currency, there was always not just one country faltering, but another country, you know, that was a logical step in its place. And right now, there isn't that one. Um, and, and by the way, China's very, very open on on and public about how, it's, how it is changing, how eventually it does want to become more important, but it's never mentioned that he wants to become the reserve currency.
1: Let me, let me just throw one thing in, though, that is a trend a some concern. And it, my numbers on this are a few months old, so I don't have the, the latest. But the Chinese were beginning to move out of the 30-year bonds into 10-year bonds. And that that don't know exactly what that means, but it may be preparatory to something and some thinking down the road.
4: No, it's just asset allocation. Look, for, for, for every long bond the, 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 the PBOC is selling, um, you know, the Fed is buying it. So well, I, I
0: want to thank each of our panelists. And unlike the previous panels, we're not going to have a break, so we're quickly going to change over. So I, I ask you to give us a minute of patience. Thank you. <laughs>